Can there be too much of a good thing? A friend recently told me a story. Um, when he was growing up, he went on an extended school trip, during which they stopped again and again at Cracker Barrel. Now, I don't know about you, but I love the thought of Cracker Barrel's cheesy hash brown casserole um, every day. Um, but upon further reflection, I mean, maybe my friend's assessment is correct. There comes a point when enough is enough. Maybe about cheesy hash brown casserole. Uh, seriously though, can there be too much of a good thing? Um, can there be too much enjoyment of nature? Can there be too much love for others? Too much wealth? We'll see from our passage this morning that it's not so much about the, the quantity of a good thing. Solomon had a whole lot of quantity. It's about our hearts and whether or not our hearts have been consumed by love for those good gifts or love for the one who is the giver of all good gifts. In the end, we'd like to say that the problem is outside of us, right? That we've had too much of a good thing. It's too much of that. But the problem is really within us. It's not the good thing. It's what we have done with that good thing. The good news of God's word is that the glory of Jesus outstrips all of the world's good. And while he invites us to enjoy the goodness of this world, he invites us to enjoy it through him as our Savior. He does this so that our hearts will remain wholly united and devoted to him in faith, hope, and love. And this is what we'll think about this morning from 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10. I want to take uh, to begin at 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe that's on page 290. 1 and 2 Kings were originally one book. And together, their message is that despite Israel's sin and the sins of her kings, God's true king will come. Though the book describes a descent from the golden era, which is what we're in in our study, we're in the golden era of Solomon's reign, it describes a descent from that golden era into the, the grueling era of the exile. Though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's sins and disobedience to God's law, the book still concludes with hope. It concludes with a son of David being released from prison, a king. And this gives us hope that God's king will come, that God will yet fulfill his promise to send a son to sit on the throne of his father David forever. So far in the book and in our study, the, we've seen that the author has been at pains to express that Solomon was the right king to sit on the throne of David. He, he was the king who sought God's wisdom, judged with wisdom, and blessed others through wisdom. Solomon built God's temple and blessed and prayed for the worship there. And God has come to dwell in that temple. This is what we saw in our last study of 1 Kings chapter 8. This morning as we study 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10, we continue to see the glory of Solomon and his kingdom. These two chapters, they follow an A, B, A, B kind of pattern. They move back and forth between personal appearances and widespread blessings. So chapter 9 opens with, a personal appearance from Yahweh. Yahweh turns up. He appears in 1 Kings chapters, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. And then we're given an account of the blessings of the expanding kingdom in verses 10 to 28 of chapter 9. And then as chapter 10 opens, another appearance occurs. The queen of Sheba turns up, and she marvels at the wisdom and wealth of Solomon. And then as chapter 10 closes in verses 14 to 29, once again, King Solomon's wealth is enumerated and the blessings spread. We'll follow this kind of A, B, A, B pattern in our study under four headings. First, kingdom establishment. Second, kingdom expansion. Third, kingdom excellence. And fourth, kingdom extravagance. And I'll repeat each of those points as we're moving into each new section. We'll begin with God's appearance uh, there under the heading of kingdom establishment. And as we read... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. Notice 
Notice who has the power to establish temple worship and who has the power to establish the throne of David. Read 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1-9 to now. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me, as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, but... If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. We must ever remember that the book of Kings was uh, written, the first readers were those who had known the disaster and the destruction of the exile. The first readers of this book were confronted with the reality that they had been cast out of God's sight, that the temple had become a heap of ruins, and that Israel had become a proverb and a byword. These verses help explain what went wrong. And notice that they come in the middle of the glory of Solomon's kingdom. Solomon, as verse 1 says there, you see it, had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. But not only that, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. This is a generous and gracious gift. In the scriptures, Yahweh's personal appearances are few in number. Uh, They're not the ordinary mode of God's operation or communication. They're not something we should necessarily expect, for they are connected with unique, uh, unrepeatable, redemptive historical events. Solomon has the, the privilege of a personal encounter with God, not once, but twice. Now, the first encounter occurred in chapter 3, when Solomon prayed for wisdom. There, Solomon answered, uh, sorry, there Yahweh answered Solomon's prayer with a promise that he would not only grant him wisdom, but because he didn't ask for wealth, but wisdom, he would also actually grant him wealth. We're going to see that prayer abundantly answered and that promise abundantly answered in these chapters. Here in chapter 9, the focus of this appearance is on establishing the worship of the temple and the throne of David. Concerning the establishment of the temple, you see there in verse 3, And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built. See, Solomon didn't do it. It was the Lord who did it. He put his name there. He put his eyes there. He put his heart there. Yahweh has consecrated and blessed the temple for worship. But he has also revealed here, right, that he has set his affection upon that place. God's affection for his people is revealed in his presence in the temple and the worship that he receives there. God promises that his heart will be set upon the temple for all time. But notice how God turns from speaking about his heart, right? I've set my heart there. He turns from that to speaking about Solomon's heart there in verse 5. God promises that his heart will be true to his temple and to establishing Solomon's throne if Solomon's heart will be true to God. Yahweh's heart will be wholly committed 
to Solomon and his sons if Solomon and his sons remain wholly committed to God. Solomon and his sons must walk before Yahweh as David walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that Yahweh commanded and keeping Yahweh's statutes and rules. This is simply a restatement of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Do you see what kind of covenant partner, so to speak, Yahweh is seeking in Solomon and the people of Israel? Do you see what kind of kingdom Yahweh wants to establish? It's a kingdom led by a faithful king and a faithful people. Faithful to the law of God. Faithfulness to the covenant Lord will determine the future of the king and the kingdom. And I suspect that there's something that perhaps puzzles you in these verses here. And that's how David, how is David the standard of integrity for Solomon and his sons? Wasn't David's life riddled with sin? We thought about this this morning in the discipleship hour, didn't we? I mean, didn't he commit adultery, murder, false testimony? How could he be the standard of integrity for Solomon and future kings? Well, the answer lies in the fact that, yes, while David was an egregious and guilty sinner, he did repent. More to the point, he never turned away from serving false gods. That is going to be the, the one thing that differentiates good kings and bad kings in the book of Kings. Whether or not they turn away from the true and living God. Exiles sitting and reading this book would have recognized that their kings turned aside from following Yahweh. And that they would have recognized that they had done the same. This text alerts readers to the reality that somewhere along the way, Solomon and his sons failed. Their, their hope looking forward, looking for a way out of this disaster, sitting in exile and in ruin, their hope looking forward would have been to look for a king who would come from the line of David, who would be a faithful covenant keeper, and who would lead them on in covenant faithfulness. This is who Jesus is. And this is the kind of kingdom he established and is establishing. Jesus was the faithful son of David, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 3. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we're told that he knew no sin. He was righteous, perfectly righteous. And that is why God the Father always kept his eyes and his heart on Jesus. Though Solomon's temple would fall out of favor with God, Jesus never did. It is why the Father raised the temple of Jesus' body from the grave on the third day. John 2. It's why God the Father declared from heaven at Jesus' baptism, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17. It's why Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son. And shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him. So that you may marvel. We ought to give thanks that God the Father sent Jesus. Because just like Solomon and the people of Israel. We. We have not kept God's law. We have broken God's law. And sinned against him. We could never be the people who remain faithful to God apart from Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the faithful son of David and king over all of God's house and is now establishing the kingdom of God by calling and changing sinners like you and me. He has fulfilled and kept all of the righteous requirements of God's law and he is now calling us to follow his pattern of righteousness. We've seen God's promise to establish the king and his kingdom and temple worship so long as Solomon and his sons walk in covenant faithfulness and obedience to God's law, God's love will be set upon his people in his place. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 10 to 28, we see the kingdom expand. This is the second thing we want to think about this morning. The kingdom expands. Uh, take a look there at uh, chapter 9, beginning there in verse 10. Let me read verses 10 to 19 for now. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. And Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities 
in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you've given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord, and his own house, and the Millow, and the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, and Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer, and burned it with fire, and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer, and lower Beth Horon, and Baalath, and Tamar in the wilderness, in the land of Judah. And all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, and the cities for his horsemen, and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. In these verses, we return to a relationship that we've seen before. Uh, namely, the relationship between Solomon and Hiram. If you'll recall from our study of 1 Kings chapter 5, Hiram, the king of Tyre, provided Solomon with all of the wood that he needed for the building of the temple. And his palace. And this is reiterated, you see there in verse 11. But we're also told here that Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. This wasn't mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 5, but perhaps it was an additional part of the arrangement of payment between Solomon and Hiram. Uh, whatever the case may be, right, the, the sheer ability to give 20 cities away is remarkable, isn't it? Uh, there goes taxes and revenue available for a kingdom. And this is also concerning for another reason. Hiram, as you can see there in, in verse 12, isn't too pleased with these cities. They're, they're given the name Kabul. Uh, the, the scriptures teach us uh, that, that we're to be wise stewards with our possessions. And they also teach us that we should deal justly with others in our business dealings. Something seems to have gone amiss here. It's not, it doesn't seem like it's to Solomon's glory or God's glory. Hiram kind of complains about these cities. Um, this is concerning, uh, not merely because perhaps Solomon was giving Hiram territory that is less than desirable, but it's concerning for another reason. He's, he's giving him actually, in all likelihood, Israelite territory. Now, these cities were likely part of the land that belonged to the tribe of Asher. It seems like the kingdom is almost about to contract and then, in the next moment, in spite of this speed bump, their, their relationship kind of hums along. Hiram sends Solomon 120 talents of gold. Right at the moment that we're beginning to think that, is this kingdom beginning to contract? There's this grandiose payment from Hiram. And the kingdom expands. And, and it keeps expanding. You see, there's these subsequent verses, these cities that come to Solomon now. Verses... 15 and 16 recount all of the labor that Solomon had available to him and his ability to continue to acquire land and complete massive building projects. We, we can simply read of place after place and project after project in these verses. Solomon builds walls and houses. He accumulates store cities and cities for his chariots and cities for his horsemen. And all of this, we must remember, is a direct fulfillment of God's promises. When the Lord first appeared to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3, Remember that when Solomon prayed for wisdom, the Lord promised him wealth. And that is why Solomon can build whatever he wants, almost wherever he wants. Uh, verses 20 to 24 enumerate some concerning and some comforting realities about this expanding kingdom. A concerning reality is that Canaanites are still living in the land. According to Deuteronomy 7, the people of Israel were under command of God to remove them from the land. Solomon, I think, is being disobedient here. He is not, to use the language of verse 6, keeping God's commandments. The only comfort here is that he's not conscripting his fellow Israelites into forced labor. He seems to have obeyed the law in part, but not in whole. The picture is beginning to emerge. This expanding kingdom is being led by a king whose heart may not be wholly devoted to Yahweh and His commands. Perhaps verses 25 to 28 are a snapshot of this. At one moment, we are with Solomon, kind of at the golden altar, worshiping, where he's bringing sacrifice, and the next, we're finding his men bringing gold to him. 
First Kings chapter 9, verses 25 to 28. Read those verses. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. Solomon, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ebion Gezer, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents. And they brought it to King Solomon. What was it that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24? Do you remember what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount? He said, you cannot serve your money and your maker. On the one hand, we are to be heartened by the nature of the expanding kingdom, Solomon's expanding kingdom. Uh, One commentator, I think, wisely observed, this is the first time in Scripture that an Israelite king goes sailing. Uh, Through much of the Old Testament, the sea represents the Gentile world, and Israelites are normally land-based shepherds and herders rather than fishers. Solomon, however, extends his reach to the sea, and like Yahweh, is able to divide the waters and pass through. Solomon specifically goes to Ophir for gold, and in Genesis chapter 10, verse 29, Ophir is associated with Havilah, the original land of gold in Genesis 2. Solomon collects gold from Ophir as a greater Adam, moving out from the garden to collect the resources of the outlying lands and bringing them back to adorn the house of the Lord. Solomon's kingdom is expanding. This is encouraging. On the other hand, we're left to wonder, where is all of this headed? Right now, the author of Kings is is not explicitly announcing Solomon's divided heart, but he is foreshadowing the fault lines. And this raises a pretty personal question for us. Where are the fault lines in our hearts? What are those things which may tempt us to turn away from the living God? In chapter 9 alone, we're alerted to the potential for trouble in the area of politics, property, weapons, and wealth. Later, we'll learn about Solomon's sin through his improper relationships. Christian, think about your heart for a moment. What tempts you to turn away from the living God? What what competes for your time and your affection? What takes up your mental energy? What crowds Christ out? What makes you anxious? Whatever makes you anxious could point to a fault line in your heart. What then should you do to guard against the danger of a, a fault line becoming a dividing line? You must pay much closer attention to God's Word. To guard against being turned away from Christ, you must purpose to turn to Christ each day by faith. This is how He expands His love in your heart. And this is how His love for the world expands. And it's how our love for the world contracts. Children, Youth, uh, young adults, does Christ have your heart? Are, are you concerned for His glory above everything else, above the things of this world? Talk with your parents about what consumes their hearts and what consumes yours. Ask them to, to share with you how to encourage a heart that loves and lives for the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory above all the things of this world. Well, the kingdom has been expanded. And through the narrator, we've been told that the kingdom bears some measure of excellence. Now, through the lips of the world's richest woman, we hear the excellence of Solomon's kingdom proclaimed. This is our next point, kingdom excellence. Uh, And here we're looking at chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10. Uh, Read 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. and, And as we read, watch Solomon take this woman's breath away. Verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. 
And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and has set you on the throne of Israel. Blessed be the Lord, because the Lord loved Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Well, King's, uh, Solomon's kingdom has been expanding, and with it, his fame spread too. And the queen of Sheba, she hears about this great king, and she wants to know just how great he is. Being from the deep south, that's where Sheba is, she makes a personal trek north to Jerusalem to see this king. And she is described there in verse 2. And, and, and as she's described, we, we are meant to understand that she's pretty wealthy, and that she's pretty royal. She's pretty powerful royal. She comes with pomp. She comes with attendants and with camels and with spices and with gold and a number of precious stones. We're given this lofty picture of this great queen so that we understand the surpassing excellence of Solomon and his kingdom. This queen's wealth is commanding, but it is nothing compared to Solomon's. And there's another comparison occurring here too. We not only have the comparison of wealth, but we also have the comparison of wisdom. Right? This, this queen's wisdom is profound. She asked Solomon hard questions, verse 1. She came to test him, and Solomon passed the test. Verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Verses 4 and 5, they, they have the effect of the queen kind of stepping back and taking a look at Solomon's kingdom and its excellence. And she surveys it all and she's left breathless. She is utterly astounded by the excellence of Solomon's kingdom, his people, and his God. She was told of Solomon's wisdom and the kingdom's excellence, but she didn't believe it until she saw it. And she had to see it with her own eyes. And having seen it with her own eyes, she can confirm that it's even better than advertised. And here's the thing about the Queen's report in verses 6 to 9. As readers, her response to the kingdom excellence of Solomon, her response is supposed to be our response. We're supposed to see Solomon's kingdom described and, and we're supposed to be amazed by it. We're supposed to think to ourselves, the Lord really has kept His promise to give Solomon great wisdom and great wealth. He really has delighted in Solomon and established and expanded his kingdom. He really has made that kingdom the happiest place on earth. This queen gives praise to where praise is due. To Yahweh. And she gives Solomon more gold as well. As you can see there in verse 10, she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. You should understand that... Um, a talent of gold weighed about 75 pounds. So if I've done my math correctly, uh, she gave Solomon about 9,000 pounds of gold. We're meant to react to the glory and excellence of this gift of gold and to recognize that Solomon has so much more. We're meant to react to the glory and excellence of Solomon's kingdom in the exact same way the Queen of Sheba does. We're to be taken aback by it. And, and while we're taken aback, our thoughts should also be traveling forward to the greater glory and excellence of Jesus and His kingdom. We should see Jesus and His kingdom the way, the same way that she saw Solomon and His kingdom. 
We read about this earlier from Luke chapter 12. Um, but I want us to think about it from Matthew. Um, Jesus told his hearers, as we read earlier in his day, that they needed to make a judgment about him before they reached the end. Jesus invited his hearers to see in him someone even greater than Solomon. And, and I want you to see this for yourself. So, so keeping one finger here, turn in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 38 to 42. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. It's, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think it's on page 817. In, in Matthew chapter 8, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, um, we read this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. In, in, in reading this, it, it's an amazing demand when you think about all that has taken place. Just in the previous two chapters alone, in chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand, given a man sight and speech, not to mention having cast out a demon, while openly declaring that such a healing revealed the kingdom of God had actually come upon them. It had arrived. If we wanted to, we could reach back even further in Matthew's Gospel and see that because of Jesus, the blind see, the dumb speak, the deaf hear, demons are driven away, the lame walk, lepers have been cleansed, and the dead live. And many of the Jewish religious leaders who are asking Jesus this question asking for a sign, had seen this. They want a sign. They want to test Jesus, just like the queen of Sheba wanted to test Solomon. And the thing is, is Jesus has already passed this test. Right? Jesus had already displayed his wisdom and glory in their presence. They just refused to see it. Now notice what Jesus says in verses 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. They want a sign. Is there really anything that Jesus could do to persuade them to believe? I suppose we shouldn't be too hard on the Pharisees. Right? People in our day want a sign, don't they? A sign from God. They want God to, to prove Himself real to them. Have you ever shared your faith with, with someone and they've, they've kind of blown you off saying something like, like look, that sounds great and all, but, but God just doesn't seem that real to me. Perhaps if He, if he gave me some kind of sign or signal in the sky or, or, or turned up here presently, I, I, I would believe Him. The reality is, is that God has already given a sign. And it's Jesus' resurrection from the dead. No more sign is needed from God to the world to prove that He is real and active and at work in our world. And what greater sign could be given than Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Even though the Pharisees may not deserve our harshest criticism, I, I suspect that they didn't really want a sign. In fact, Jesus tells them that no sign will be given except for that sign of Jonah. Right? Jesus compares... Jonah's time entombed in the belly of the fish to the time that he will spend entombed in the heart of the earth. In other words, he predicts his death and resurrection. And then he goes on to compare Jonah's preaching to his. Both were called to preach a message of repentance. And Jesus' point is not merely to reveal the commonality, right, that exists between Jonah's preaching and his preaching. His point is that someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is here to do a greater work than that of Jonah. He will spare men not from physical death, but sure and certain spiritual death. Do you realize that Jonah was written in part 
to reveal to us that Jesus is a much better prophet than Jonah. Jonah disobeyed God's word and fled from the presence of the Lord. Jesus obeyed God's word and he set his face toward Jerusalem, not away from it. He went to the place where his father wanted him to go and he marched to his death. It was Jonah's disobedience that sent him into the raging sea to be swallowed up by a great fish. But it was Jesus' obedience that sent him to the cross where he would endure wave after wave of God's eternal wrath and so be swallowed up in death. And three days after his death, he would emerge from the tomb victorious. And here is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees in Matthew 12. The Ninevites listened to Jonah and repented. Someone greater than Jonah is here, right here, standing in your very midst and you're not listening. The Pharisees' failure to listen is what connects Jesus' next statement in verse 42. You see the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, she traveled a great distance to visit wise and wealthy Solomon. But someone greater than Solomon is here. And how much more should this generation listen to Jesus? And now that he's been raised from the dead, how much more should we listen to Jesus? How will you respond to the glory and excellence of Jesus? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, we're told that Jesus, in Jesus we find all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to see the glory and excellence of Jesus today. There is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. You'll either be driven by evil rebellion, refusing to see Jesus' excellence and glory displayed preeminently in His resurrection of the dead, and so despise Jesus, or you'll be a faithful disciple who marvels at the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ see we have all sinned and rebelled against God but Jesus is not has not unlike Solomon and unlike every one of us Jesus heart was never divided Jesus heart was always and only wholly devoted to God Jesus greatness glory and excellence can be seen in his righteousness more than this too it is also seen and the fact that He is God's Son and servant. He willingly went to the cross to die for sinners like you and me. And on the cross, He took upon Himself the sin and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God performed that sign of Jonah, raising Jesus from the dead, thus proving to us that His righteous sacrifice was accepted by God on our behalf, thus providing and proving that he is more glorious and glorified than Solomon. And now Jesus calls us to turn from our sins. He calls us to turn to him and be forgiven, to receive rest and a joyful welcome into his heavenly family. He calls us to believe that he lived and died and was raised from the grave for us. Friends, this is what it means to embrace Jesus in faith. This is what it means to recognize the glory and excellence of Christ our King. And if you want to think more about what it means to truly follow after the Savior, to behold His glory and faith, please come and find me at the door after the service. I talk with a Christian that you came here with this morning, a friend or family member who encourage you to come. This is good news. There's nothing more important that you can think about than this good news of Jesus and His surpassing excellence, greater than that of Solomon. We've seen the kingdom establish and expand. We've heard a faithful testimony concerning the excellence of the king and his kingdom. And from a Gentile, no less. Now, we turn back to 1 Kings chapter 10, where the chapter closes with a picture of kingdom extravagance. So, if you're using one of the Bibles to provide, I think that's on page 291. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 10. And as we begin to consider this final portrait of kingdom extravagance... In 1 Kings 10, see, see if you can spot the, the extravagance that's kind of laid out here. Uh, as we read just verses 14 to 23 for now. 
Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold, which it went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. And the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing besides the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a side of six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Here, Solomon is clearly portrayed as a wise and wealthy king. Every, I mean, whoever can afford a peacock, right, has got to be wealthy. Every year, Solomon receives, if you've done the math, he receives about 50,000 pounds of gold. He receives gifts from other kingdoms and other business ventures. All of this points us to the glory of Solomon and the kingdom that the Lord had established. In this, we see a glimmering picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Royalty from across the earth comes to Solomon. Royalty from across the earth came and gave Jesus gifts at his birth. Remember too, at the end of the Bible, the Bible ends in Revelation 21, with the kings of the earth bringing their glory into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have here is a picture of that great and final day where we will all step back and see a kingdom of grace and glory. And even as we look at Solomon's glorious kingdom, there's a, there's a kind of extravagance to it, isn't there? Now, now, not all extravagance is bad. There's a place for endeavoring to communicate the, the transcendence of God. The problem, however, seems to lie in the fact that all of this extravagance is associated with Solomon's house and not the house of the Lord. Does Solomon really need 500 golden shields? His great white ivory throne is overlaid with gold. All of his drinking vessels are gold. Other vessels too. That's a lot of gold. Once again, we're told in verses 24 and 25 that the nations are, are streaming to Solomon's throne. They're blessing him with presents of silver and gold, garments and myrrh and spices and horses and mules. And then notice that phrase there at the end of verse 25. So much year by year. That, free, that feels like it's the author saying it's, it's just too much. That is, I, I think, a hint of the author's perspective on things. It's a clue saying the extravagance of this kingdom is amazing and profound, but somewhere something's amiss about this. Somewhere it seems like he's gone kind of too far in his pursuit of wealth. It's, it's just too much. Read verses 26 to 29. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were imported to all kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now, to be fair, some, some scholars and some Christians believe that the narrator's perspective on these events is entirely positive toward the wealth 
of Solomon. But I actually think that the narrator is showing us, especially here in these closing verses of the chapter, that he has some misgivings about Solomon's reign. Keep all of that gold in your mind. Keep just how common Solomon made silver in your mind. Keep all of these horses and chariots in your mind. And keep Egypt in your mind, the place where Solomon got his horses. Keep these things in your mind and keep one finger here and turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, Deuteronomy 17, especially verses 14 to 20, is on page uh, 161. 161. You'll recall uh, that 1 Kings 9 opened with a call for Solomon to keep God's laws, his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. And what is Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy is a book of the law. It's it's a book of the law. And and what we're about to read are God's laws concerning Israel's kings. And as we read these verses, remember Solomon's gold. Remember his silver. Remember his horses and chariots. And where he got his horses from. From Egypt. He got his horses from Egypt. Now, read Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and possess it to dwell in it, and then say, I, have, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, which is not, who is not your brother. Only he, that's the king, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he, shall not, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. This law. This one right here. Solomon should write this law down. What, he, what we just read. This is supposed to be in his mind and on his heart. Verse 18, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and all these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's, And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Turning back to 1 Kings uh, 10, if you'll permit me. Do you see what the writer of Kings is subtly, and maybe not so subtly, communicating to us through mentioning the extravagance of Solomon's gold, silver, chariots, and horses from Egypt? Before he explicitly pronounces the fact that Solomon's heart had turned away from the living God, which he's going to do in chapter 11, the author implicitly announces the turning of Solomon's heart through his authorial artistry. Right? He records the history of Solomon's extravagance in the categories of the sins of Deuteronomy 17. The message of the end of Kings 10, of 1 Kings 10, is that Solomon's excess... And extravagance exposes his divided heart. Formerly, Solomon's chief concern was the glory of God, his name and his house. And now Solomon's chief concern is the glory of Solomon, of Solomon's name and of Solomon's house. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, allow me to suggest to you that wealth as a means of safety, security, trust, honor, and pleasure is just as much of a temptation for us as it was for Solomon. It's just as much of a fault line for our hearts. And this is where I'd like us to conclude, by considering how we stand in a similar place with some of the same temptations as Solomon. Listen to what our Savior said in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How do we battle the love of sinful extravagance? We remember that the stuff of this life 
is not all about stuff. Uh, we, we remember that the good gifts of this world, and they are good gifts. We remember that the good gifts of this world are good gifts to be enjoyed to the glory of God. These are gifts that are to point us back to God. And they are meant to push us on to faithfulness to God. And just a few verses later in Luke 12, after Jesus says that we're to guard our hearts against this covetousness, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 31 and 32. He says, instead, seek His kingdom. Seek God's kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you His kingdom. Solomon forgot that his wealth was a gift from God. Solomon forgot that his kingdom was a gift. And Jesus calls us to remember that we're treasured by God. And that he is to be our treasure. Jesus calls us to remember this. That, that he is so pleased to give us everything we need. Including his kingdom. Christian God. He plans to give you his glorious kingdom. A kingdom led, led by a king who surpasses the glory of Solomon. In view of God's generosity toward us, we are called to be generous toward him, even making him the treasure of our hearts. Those, those gold shields in, in Solomon's house, they were useless for battle. They would weigh you down. They were heavy. They were more of a liability, a trap, than a leg up on the competition. What gold shields are there in your life? God is to be our chief treasure. He will be our chief help in battle. Disciples treasure God. And they're treasured by God. They pursue His kingdom first, above their own. The blessing of being treasured by God, of being His beloved children, ought to encourage several things within us. We ought to long to see His kingdom in our hearts established more firmly through faith and obedience to His commands. We ought to long to see His kingdom expand and bless others. We ought to long to proclaim His excellence and wisdom to others. And we ought to long for His extravagant love to be made known so that others receive the riches of His grace and treasure Him. Let's pray to that end. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.